FM with Green Farm. Being up to 90 isn't real. The protein in our range is Get Real. Jenny Green for helping us get the week off to a great start. It's Monday the 10th of January and this is Game On. Coming up today, we'll check in with Shamrock Rovers player Roberta Lopez who is playing for Cape Verde in the African Cup of Nations. Ball hanging in the air and that's the opening goal. 1-0 in stoppage time. Finally the tactic plays off. Now they just switched off to Ethiopia. The ball just hanging in the air. Great ball back by Rodriguez. Saving of Julia Tavares. The magic of the FA Cup continued over the weekend. Stephen Kelly and Paul Corey give us their views. Graven running through the middle. Yates has gone out to the right. Looking for Graven in the centre. Is the Novak Djokovic debacle over? Well, Stephen Higgins will tell us. She posted a photo of the Rolling Arena and uh, obviously it's very real. We all know what kind of a player Novak is. His best on court, you know, whatever the circumstances are, and uh, we as a family will support him all the way. Now, along with that, Stephen Ferris will join us for our weekend rugby review. And if you want to get in touch, please text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. GameOn on 2FM. Welcome along. Paul Corey is with me in studio. Paul, how are things? Have you been watching much of the African Cup of Nations? Yes, I have. I uh, tuned in last night, particularly keen interest in seeing how Pico, for my teammate, got on in, in the African Cup of Nations and, and positive result. But it's certainly a, a different type of watch than the usual Premier League football that we see. So, uh, yeah, it's something to keep us going, particularly in the middle of the day, something to watch and uh, be interested to see how it develops. Former teammate of Roberto Lopez? Yeah, first year at Shamrock Rovers. Now, I say teammate, I actually didn't play many minutes. <laughs> I was uh, permanently crocked by the time uh, I got to Shamrock Rovers. Uh, it just worked out that way but Pico was always uh, uh, you know somebody who was at the, the forefront of the dressing room really disciplined really professional and it's, it's no surprise to see that he's gone on and do really well because he's somebody who's put a lot into the game Well as well as being at the forefront of all of those things he is at the forefront of the African Cup of Nations all Irish eyes were on him last night as his Cape Verde uh, beat Ethiopia 1-0 and he joins us on the line now to tell us all about how he's getting on and how the experience is Roberto Lopez, how are you? I'm all good, Marie. How are you? Oh, great. And look, it's brilliant to hear from you. But more so, it's brilliant to see all the coverage that you're getting and just how much attention and reaction uh, your appearances are getting as well. Yeah, it's, it's actually a bit like, shocking for me. I wasn't, wasn't expecting the, uh, the exposure that obviously I'm getting. Like, and I'm not used to it, to be honest with you. But uh, it's great to to get the support from, from back home and obviously like, a lot of people getting in contact with me wishing me well and, and congratulating me after yesterday's game which is which is really nice and overwhelming I have to say like I'm just overwhelmed with all the support Yeah it is it is amazing really we were, Paul and I were just talking before the programme about the fact you're on Sky Sports News my kids were telling me that you're on Thogden's YouTube channel which is uh, Sky Sports News really for 10 year olds so you're kind of getting all the, the audiences and, and we're loving watching you what's it like playing in it though? Yeah, like, look, it's it's an incredible experience. As I um, the, the football, like it's, it's it's a really high quality and it's really tense. I think uh, the first like our first game yesterday sort of showed that like the nerves were sort of about the first game was probably tight. Like and you know sort of one mistake is, is probably going to give the other team an opportunity to score. And uh, I think that's the 
they made a mistake last night, got to a man sent off, like, and we, we eventually capitalised on it. Like, but uh, we're just so happy, um, obviously, to get the win and start off well. Yeah, a really, really brilliant start. And people are really curious as well about your story. Anyone that has just tuned in is probably listening to the Dublin accent, wondering how you ended up playing with Cape Friday. Tell us a little bit about your connection. Yeah, yeah. So me, me dad's from uh, from Cape Verde. So that's how I, I qualify. I still have uh, some family down there. Me, me granddad's down there along with a few uncles and aunties. So uh, I've always always had Cape Verde heritage in me. Like I have to go searching far for it. Um, but um, it wasn't until I was playing with Sean McRobers and I got a message through LinkedIn from the then manager, Rui Agwish, uh, which I ignored for, for nine months. I'm sure everyone's well aware of that story by now. Uh, and yeah, look, thankfully he got back to me uh, and wrote back to me in English and uh, I, was, I was delighted to come on board and I'm just so grateful that he, he was patient with me. So why why did you ignore it? Just uh, growing up, you, know, you, you used to the prank phone calls and you used to sort of like, <laughs> spam messages. And I just I was this sceptical of, of how genuine it was. And look, I, I set up LinkedIn when I was in college and a lot of the time you were you were connecting with people and they were just sending you like a sort of a message to say, oh, thanks for connecting me and greetings. And because this first message was in Portuguese, I just assumed it was something like that. And yeah, just through sheer ignorance, I, uh, I ignored the message, which looking back on it now, I... I can't believe how rude I was. Like, all I had to do was, was copy and paste into Google Translate and uh, it would have done all the, the hard work for me. But like I said, I'm just so thankful that he, he took the time with me and probably understood that I didn't speak Portuguese at the time and wrote back to me in England uh, in English a few months later and the rest is history. That's a superb uh, story, Pico. I guess on the on the playing side of things, is it one where you feel you have to adapt your game at international football, particularly playing in the African Cup of Nations? Is it a different tempo, different style? How do you feel, I guess, playing between Cape Verde and Shamrock Rovers and how you have to alter your game? Yeah, they do have to alter your game, of course. Like, I think the, the conditions sort of factor that a lot. Like, I've got to experience that a lot. I think um, we played Liberia and Ghana at one o'clock during, during the day in, in African heat and, and let, me tell, let me tell you it's completely different to one o'clock in, in uh, Dublin up in Tallaght um, yeah so like the, the tempo isn't uh, probably as fast at times and again that's because you can blow up after 20 minutes if you, if you really play at a high intensity Like so you have, sort of have to control uh, the conditions and control your game and obviously pick your moments and obviously stay concentrated because it's easy to switch off and be punished in a, in, in a heartbeat over here like so uh, yeah like I say I've developed my game to sort of try and use the experience I've had so far and put it in practice in this tournament. It's a great opportunity as well for just the Shamrock Rovers club to be getting so much exposure and so much attention too and, and we're seeing um, so much written about them as well off the back of your experiences. Just even the last couple of years, um, Pico, like you have now travelled all over, I'd say far-flung places, um, places that we're only getting to know through this African Cup of Nations. Being on that journey has, has must be have been pretty cool. Ah, it, it, it's fantastic as I say like obviously from a football point of view like uh, it's unbelievable and I feel like it's developed me game and taught me game but just as like so life experiences I'm, I'm going to places in the world that I'd never go on holiday like you know what I mean I'm, I'm getting to do a true football and uh, just through that like it just you know, kind of diving into different cultures and you're just not afraid to try uh, new things now like and even with, with Kate Bird I say I probably didn't pay enough attention growing up when my dad was talking about Kate Bird I've sort of had much of an interest as I should have and I'm just making up for last time now I'm just uh, jumping into the, to the culture and to the language and uh, just trying to learn as much as I can about the country 
the form is really impressive, Pico. Just even looking back, I guess, as far as the the game against Cameroon in twenty twenty one when you when you won three one. What's you know the target or what's the approach going to be like in in the next two games? Obviously, Cameroon being the host nation, and then the game against Burkina Faso, who have a lot of quality through their team. Will it be maybe be a little cagier, keep you tight, try not lose games, hang in there, or what will the approach be? Will it be different, say, than the than the opening game against Ethiopia? Yeah, look, it's been difficult. Obviously, we would have got game plans going into each game, but our preparations have always been uh, have been um, a bit all over the place with, with COVID cases and disruptions, and we haven't really had a, a full squad to train with in since since day one, really. Like, um, so uh, we, we, the most important thing was we, we tried to start off with a win, which which we have, and we haven't really looked uh, beyond Burkina Faso now. As I say, we just need to focus on there to be a completely different opposition uh, in Ethiopia. We know what. To be very strong and look to hurt us. Uh, so we just kind of have to study them, do our homework, and, and pick our moments. And uh, we're not looking too far into the competition either. Say we want to get out of the groups, and uh, if we win on Thursday, we'll put ourselves in a really strong position. So that's all our focus at the moment. Yeah, and everybody here is definitely behind you. And in terms of COVID, what's the bubble been like for you guys? Then are you just all together? And, and you know, is it difficult to be existing in that as well? Yeah, look, it's probably uh, having the biggest impact on the whole uh, atmosphere in the place because you're kind of confined to your bubble in, in the hotels. You're not really getting out and feeling the energy as much. Like, but there's definitely moments when you're when you're going to train or you're, as I say, at the match last night. Like, you can just feel the, the sort of energy that's uh, buzzing around the place. You say the boo-boos wail and the, and the horns are waking us up every morning. And then you're going to you're going to train. You're seeing everyone out in the streets just jumping around dancing because you know there's they see the the national team bus driving by and you know there's there's footballers on that leg. So there is a great feel like I say when you're going to train or you're going to the matches. But um, because of COVID, like everyone's being careful then outside. Like, there's no sort of going out and uh, sightseeing. Or there's yeah, there's not much else going on outside of the hotel. It's great though the because of the the big name players that are going to be playing in it as well that it is grabbing the attention of the world and you know for the next few weeks there's going to be an awful lot of eyeballs on it yeah definitely I, say, I think Sky Sports uh, saying they're going to show every game is massive for the competition and it's great exposure uh, for the competition and as you say as the players and all that like, and it's probably given the, the tournament the, the respect that it deserves I say it's one of the biggest tournaments uh, football tournament in the world like, and it's just great to see that uh, being shown on such a platform and and say everyone can tune in and watch it very handy yeah and it's great to have you there as well Pico we wish you the best of luck and look forward to following your progress over the next uh, few weeks and hopefully a little bit longer we'll talk to you soon Pico brilliant thanks very much guys See thanks you talk to you soon oh, Paul it is brilliant to, to hear Pico there and just to be flying that flag for the League of Ireland at a competition where look it's going to have some of the best players the players that we love watching week in week out playing in as well yeah I think I think it's just an incredible story for, for Pico not just about how uh, I guess he got the call up to Burkina Faso but it's more or not Burkina to Cape Verde it's more the, the story of his journey through the League of Ireland and he's one of those who's really stuck at it really improved his game and as somebody who's the utmost discipline of you know any team that I played in, he, he's right up there. And then it's it's just crazy to think that you know the League of Ireland off season is so long. <laughs> I never ever thought I'd see my timeline so populated with League of Ireland fans talking about the African Cup of Nations, and that that would keep us tied over between the two seasons. So an incredible story. And listen, fingers crossed they've they've won their first game. When you do that in a group of three. You give yourself every chance of nicking a result. They've beaten Cameroon before and Burkina Faso will be a test as well. But if they get out of the group, you know, I'm sure there'll be many eyes dotted around the League of Ireland who'd be glued to that competition. 
You sound like a bit of an expert there now, Paul, already. Have you been doing a, a bit of homework there and, and plan on spending well, the next few weeks watching there's, it? There's a couple of games on today, Miriam. I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> you don't ask me about them because uh, I think it's the Comoros Islands I was listening to earlier playing at, at 7 o'clock tonight. So um, I'll, I'll get up to grips as the weeks go by. I definitely have uh, some learning to do on some of those teams and some of the players. But it's an interesting watch. It's different than the Premier League and uh, it's something that we can we can watch during the day. So, yeah. We'll see how it materialises. Well, I'll let you off the hook, so and we can turn our attention to the FA Cup. And luckily tonight, we do have an all-Premier League encounter, Manchester United and Aston Villa. It's pretty much a doubleheader, really, because they're going to be playing each other again very shortly in the Premier League. But tonight, it is the FA Cup. And it feels like Manchester United are under pressure a little bit again, just not so much because of performances but just so more so because of the leaks that are coming out of the camp and, and the negativity and you know the fact that it feels like Ralph Rannick already has to defend what he's doing and what he's about and that reaction that we thought that he would get from the players doesn't really seem to be there yeah, I think I think fans were really angered at even more so the performance against Wolves and the defeat, but also the picture that that came out afterwards with Phil Jones and his body language and seeing like the only one that was actually interested or pumped up for the game and the rest of them, you know, quite negative body language looked as if it was almost a chore to go out and play for Manchester United. And I think the players have obviously thrown a number of managers under the bus over the last number of seasons, and I think the fans are starting to turn on the players. Um, and there's a lot of players in that in that squad who you could start to, to point the finger at and start ask questions of the likes of I mean Marcus Rashford Martial Marcus Greenwood they haven't done it consistently over the last number of seasons and I think the I think the fans are really starting to, to question the attitude of of the core group of players that are in there there just seems to be a culture within that squad that you can you cannot work hard and you get away with, with doing the basics of the games and uh, for that reason this this fixture tonight is becoming even more important that they need to put in kind of a gutsy display and show the I guess what it means to play for the club and show a bit of passion and do the basics and then hopefully from there lean on their quality to to get them through the tie but it probably has probably has a, a bit more of a meaning than just the performance tonight I think the fans are st- wanting to see a you know positive performance from the players. Well, let's hear from Ralph Rannick. We have made some progress, but obviously the game against uh, Wolves uh, was uh, yeah, again a step back. It was uh, maybe even a relapse to, 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 uh, to habits that the team has shown in the past. And uh, therefore we need to, again, insist and emphasise every time that we have to work together. Stephen Kelly is with us as well. Stephen, it's always interesting when you analyse the language that managers come out with there and the word relapse. You can tell from listening to Rannick that he clearly doesn't want them to go back to where they were and where they were was a real problem for them. Yeah, you know, he... I think he feels like he's made strides forward and I'm not too sure that's actually happened yet um, but you know he doesn't want them to get back to a situation where they were when Solskjaer was still in and I think there's still such a question about how they play the shape I know he's tried to incorporate a little bit more pressing and stuff and all but you just can't see a change and Wolves Wolves dominated them Wolves absolutely played them off the park at times and it was a real eye opener to what this team need and what they need to go forward and, and as Paul was saying you know the, the amount of players that they have that don't perform at a consistent level um, and are uh, such a huge team like United and that's what that's what they were they were just consistent performers for so many years always delivering top level players that, uh, that were sevens eights every week at the moment they up and down so often that they drift in our games and 
yeah, the manager, is, he has so much to do with this squad of players to try and get them back to anywhere near the top level. And, you know, this is a big night for them. Yeah, it is. And Paul, just in terms of the FA Cup and whether or not it would be something that they should go after and would even be capable of going after, really, because Aston Villa will put in a, a tough challenge. Is it something that would maybe... I suppose improve the outcome of their season if they were to go and win an FA Cup or is that almost nearly a little bit beneath them now? I think they're looking for positives where they can find them, uh, Marie. You, you know, just positive performances and positive results and try gather a bit of momentum that can hopefully take them further through the different competitions. But if you look at the Premier League, I mean, they were never really in with a realistic chance of pushing the likes of City, Chelsea and Liverpool top four is really what they're aiming for there so there's no chance of winning a trophy. Champions League on their current form they're going to struggle against Atletico Madrid by the looks of things so then you're looking at at the FA Cup as, as their only realistic opportunity of winning a trophy and Manchester United as a club need to get back to being competitive in the latter stages of competition so that I don't think it's an option for Manchester United like it is for the other teams to sacrifice the FA Cup they have to go out here tonight win progress in the competition and hopefully use this as maybe a basis to get some of the players and get the team going again and try build confidence but the position that they're in now they don't get to pick and choose which competitions that they can I guess take seriously from the Aston Villa side of things as well they're going to be looking at these two games the Premier League one as well Stephen as ones that they can get results just because there seems to be um, a few cracks appearing in uh, Ralph Rannick's very short tenure especially then I think when you throw in Coutinho as well and the fact that you could get a massive lift from him Oh well you know we uh, Marie, you know the, <laughs> the quality you watch continue enough and every, every Liverpool fan has absolutely loved the guy when he was there like he was wonderful to watch him play and when he's in that number 10 role and he's on form like it hasn't happened from a Barcelona and everybody wanted it it just didn't um, but if you can get him anywhere near back to what he was he will be he will light up the Premier League he's such a wonderful talent and, and I'm sure Steven Gerrard is absolutely going to have like this team forward up to play against United like he used to relish playing against United regardless of what strength Liverpool side he played in he would always put up a fight and I'm sure this means a lot to him to go into this game and try and get a result but you know you can see he's he's added a lot of steeliness to Villa um, I know results have not always been great but he, they've they've changed and they've got you feel like they're more capable of winning games and then you throw Coutinho into the mix and hopefully, you know, just, just because as a neutral with Villa, you want to see players like that performing at the highest level and you, you hope he gets back to some sort of level of quality because he's just such, he's so good on the eye. Yeah, he just has that spark, doesn't he? Mm. So the FA Cup, Paul Curry, look, it's given us a lot of entertainment this weekend. And just from an Irish point of view, seeing Newcastle lose to Cambridge United and Wesley Houlihan still doing it. It's incredible. Uh, you know, I'm not sure he's been as involved this season as he was last year with, with Cambridge's promotion campaign. I think he might have had one or two little niggles, but... It seems as if the peak years of his career have kind of come in his late 20s and early 30s and he's really galvanised and he obviously has such a passion for the game to still be going at, at this late stage. I mean, I'm going to play five-a-side tonight. I'm 30 years of age and I wake up in the morning and I feel like a bus has hit me. So I can't imagine the, the graft that he has to go through on a consistent basis to get his body body through it but you know an incredible story and it's incredible to see him still go and he's such a technical player sometimes it's not easy when you go down into the likes of League 2 he was still able to do it, and that just kind of shows what sort of a classy player he is that he could play at any level and still shine um, so an amazing story and it's one of them you know people question the FA Cup you have arguably the most 
wealthy club in, in world football at this moment going out to a team we're playing in League One so major question marks for, for Newcastle and where they're going but an incredible story for Cambridge and West Hulham yeah it really is Stephen and he did an interview actually while he spoke to the media because I read an interview with him earlier in the week and, and they're a rare thing but you could just tell from, from reading the quotes he's still enjoying himself you know it's like he's just almost gone out playing street football and doing what he loves and that's an amazing place to be Honestly, that but that's been Wezo since he was at Belvo when he's fourteen. Honestly, God, that that's him. Like he, he just he plays football like he's in a five-a-side with his mates. That that's how he's always approached every game. He's always wanting to get in the ball, always looking to do things. You know, from his time at shells and and then when he went away and you know he was he was a late developer coming across to the UK. But you know, for Norwich, he's held in such high esteem because he's done it on so many levels for them throughout the championship he was one of the star players then he went up into the Premier League and he was a star for them there and now he's dropped down the leagues again and he still plays football the way he wants to play it finding pockets finding space little dinks around the corner movements um, and like I said like Paul just said there as well to be at the age he's at now Wes is older than me as well and you know to be training and playing and it's physical and it's rough and a man of his stature has been kicked up and down the pitch his whole career um, because you know he's slight and figure but he, he doesn't shun, shun away from anything and he, he's a credit to himself because the physical condition he has to be in to be still playing and at the high level he's at is, is amazing and he is just a wonderful talent Yeah I love talking about him because at some stage we won't be because he'll be gone so I think every little minute that we do get to applaud him and to give him a nod it's uh, it's well worth doing Arsenal are now out of the FA Cup I thought that they had uh, turned a corner but losing to Nottingham Forest is a really big bro for Arteta because I think it reflects that he still hasn't found that consistency that he's been searching for Paul no, and that's the difference between I mean, I mean the really top teams you know the likes of your City your Chelsea and your Liverpool and people keep going on about them but that's because they're consistently good and irrespective of I guess what eleven go out there whether it comes from the manager it stems from, from them the performances always seems to be there then you go a level down and, and you get that bit of inconsistency with the likes of Arsenal, Tottenham and Man U. They give you hope, they push on, they get a couple of results and then they let you down again. And that was a poor result for Arteta and Arsenal because similarly to Manchester United, this is an opportunity to go deep into a competition. And yes, he changed a couple of players, but with the 11 that he had out there, you certainly felt as if they had enough firepower to get through. I, I, I really like Steve Cooper. I love what he did at Swansea. I think he's going to do a really good job at Forest. But Arsenal and the players that they have should be getting through a game like that. What also doesn't go well is, is the results. But when you match that with what happened with Tavares and the debacle with himself and Arteta and coming off and the way he acted. I'm not a major fan of whipping players after 30 minutes. I'll be honest with you, Marie, or 35, you know, wait 10 and get them to, to half time. But what proceeded afterwards with Tavares and, and his body language and, and not shaking hands with the staff, that just doesn't look good. It really, really doesn't look good. And uh, when you put it all together, it's just not a good day at the office for Arsenal. Yeah, we're seeing actually quite a bit of that, the, the negative body language, I think, over the last little while. It's definitely a sign of frustration. He did, Arteta was the one who apologised. He just apologised, Stephen, for the team not being good enough and said they needed more drive, more hunger, they need a better mentality. But it's that apology scenario again where instead of just going out and actually winning the game and putting in their performance, we're seeing Arteta having to, to say sorry for it which, is, which isn't a good look either 
No, it's just it's it's just crept in, hasn't the football to every walk of life really, where people are apologising for everything that's done wrong. Like, yeah, he's the manager, so he probably has to say, you know, fans for travelling, everything that's gone on with that, and apologise for the team not performing and take on the chin because he's the manager, and that's really where the book's going to stop. But you know, I suppose we've spoke about it before, and we've been on chatting and losing our mind to talking about players messaging after games and it's just kind of it's got beyond the joke at this stage you know just go out and talk with your feet like that's I know like we're, we're retired now we're having ball and we can talk about it here now because that's our job and that, but and that's what people think you're like oh what are you talking about that is my job now I'm, I'm actually on here to talk about football players are on to play football when I played football I wouldn't talk much about it I would have just tried to do the best I could and if I was terrible in a match I'd do everything I could the next game to not be terrible and that's, that's, that's how you get on with it that, that's how you improve as a player that's how you make a name for yourself and that's how you go on and have a good career and you know there's just too many players that are like that even wonderful players that are so so easy just to come out and message and for Arteta yeah he's the manager maybe he has to because it's a really poor performance and a poor result for them but it's just something that it's not enjoyable to see that this apology is, is everywhere. Yeah, they're just tagging it on to everything. And as you said, mm-hmm. Stephen, the best way to apologise is to come out the next day and be better. And then you very quickly forget about those uh, poor results. Uh, Spurs are through to the next round, Stephen, but they didn't have the best performance really over the weekend. No, they were almost coming out with apologies. <laughs> <laughs> even though they won. No, even though they won, yeah. Um, no, it wasn't. It was, a poor, it was a poor performance, and you know, it really scared them to be one 0 down. And obviously, the cavalry, cavalry can come on, and someone like Mora, who who just injects so much pace and energy into the team to change a wings with it, with you know a cross shot that ends up in the back of net just to get them back on track. But the quality they have, they should have never been in that position. And Conte was furious. You could tell. I can, I could, I would have loved to be a fly in the wall at half time in that change room because he would have absolutely ripped the head off players. It would have been so interesting because he's so passionate and so he you see he kicks every ball on the sideline so half time there he would have been taking no prisoners um, but they came out and they changed it and you know they've got the luxury we have to bring on a Harry Kane and Lucas Moore that can change the match um, but again bad, bad body language talking about Dombele mm-hmm. going off and getting booed by the fans and you know it looks like his time could be up there but it all accounts in the paper so it could be changes for Spurs yeah, he did look really frustrated and on ballet for, for sure and all rumours are that he is going to be leaving. Mm. Would you play him like if you you know when when you know that's going on? Yeah, it's a strange one. I guess you you want to keep things fresh within your starting eleven. I mean, in Dombele, I I watched him at Sanford Bridge a couple of years back. Like this guy has so much talent like ridiculous levels of talent but doesn't seem to have either the game to play at the Premier League and the pace and, and the the physical element to it or he just hasn't got the appetite to actually put in the hard work so I mean they've tried a number of different managers have tried to get it out of him whether it be Mourinho Conte uh, Nuno it just hasn't happened so I think you can only try so many times before you have to actually show him the door so his times are limited there but you could probably put a few question marks it doesn't look as if it's really happening for Matt Doherty at the moment particularly if they're going to bring in Adama Traore Conte had Victor Moses at Chelsea in that type of position you would imagine that's another person who's going to go ahead of Doherty in the in the pecking order and Deli Ali as well you know how much longer is he is he going to be hanging around there you could ask the same questions as Deli Ali that we do of Ndombele maybe because he's he's British he escaped some of it um, but there's still major question marks about a number of that Tottenham squad and I'm a Chelsea fan and every time I see them kind of stumbling across the line I just think they're getting a bit spursy again and will they go on and win any more trophies I don't think so yeah I think there's a lot of disappointment around their performance they're alright wasn't a huge amount of disappointment around Liverpool's performance though a 4-1 win over Shrewsbury Town and it was the teenagers that are taking all the credit Stephen 
Yeah, no, it was some um, big performance. And Liverpool just, you know, using their squad, but young players coming in and really making a name for themselves and actually, you know, taking this opportunity to show what they can do. And this is the thing about the FA Cup. You're, you're playing against lower league teams that are always going to make it tough because they'll put blocks in and they'll make it hard to play against. But for a young player to come in and just show really good attitude coming into a side that's vibrant and energetic and they play with pace. And you can just see that they knew what their manager wanted from them. So that even though they're young and they've not played much football, they came into this side and they were able to implement the manager's style and system and shape because the whole club, it's drilled through everybody. So no matter who steps up into it, they know exactly what's expected of them, which is so lovely to see because you see other teams, young players being thrown in and you kind of think they're a bit wishy-washy and they don't know what's going on because they haven't learned. They have, the manager hasn't actually instructed them. Whereas the young lads for Liverpool went in and they all gave a really good account of it, but it was because they're well-drilled, organised in a side that knows exactly what they're doing all the time, no matter who's in the team. Yeah, it's kind of a case of that they don't really feel like backup players. You know, they feel like part mm-hmm. of something and then they're they're straight in. And Connor Bradley from Tyrone is one that seems to be really making his mark and it's not easy to do it. No, it's not. And it's a difficult position, particularly Liverpool, in order to break in. And he's somebody who's who's been given opportunities at different stages. So somebody who's obviously held in high regard. But two other just young players that... You know, just looking over the weekend, like Cole Palmer from Man City is mm. absolutely fantastic. It seems as they've got a production line of of like naturally gifted left footed players with with Foden and then Cole Palmer and then Young McAtee that came on afterwards, and then maybe a little closer to home it was brilliant to see Evan Ferguson come off yeah. the bench for for Brighton, and he was actually instrumental in the in the equaliser. It was maybe a bit of a, a touch to get away from a defender that Mopey latched onto, but even if Mopey wasn't there, you kind of felt like Ferguson had the power and the strength to get by. I saw him play a couple of times here, Marie at underage level and I think he's got absolutely everything to, to potentially like go on and caution, have a good but career. I think he's got it yeah no he's, he's definitely he's got all the tools so he's a big strong powerful front man he can take it in and, and hold it up or he can run in behind he's got a natural knack for scoring goals I think the fact that they let Aaron Connolly go out and loan shows how highly Graham Potter rates him and hopefully whether it be the FA Cup or you know minutes here and there that are drip fed to him over now and the end of the season hopefully we can see a bit more of him Stephen we've had conversations in the past about players similar conversations of that age where we think they're going to be the ones that are going to actually make it in the Premier League and then subsequently be the the player that we need for the Republic of Ireland but although we're being cautious it does feel like Evan Ferguson has something special he does he's very young and he's you know I've covered him a couple of times as the 21s now for Orty and I've got to watch him close up and he does he has got great movement he's got great physicality he's got good size about him and his attitude is really good which I think which is which will go a long way in whether or not he's going to succeed and be, you know, be someone that's going to actually be an ever-present or someone that's going to be reliable for Ireland in the future if that, if that is to happen. Because you see, the manager really likes his work ethic and his commitment and the way he, he goes about it. So, so attitude is absolutely massive. Like, you can have all the talent in the world. You go back down to Dombele at Tottenham, you can have all the talent in the world, but having the right attitude will get you so far to go along with that. And Ferguson seems to have this. He seems to have, you know, the manager likes what he's got about himself. He, he's grounded. He understands what he has to do. He's working hard. He's close to the first team, but he knows he's not there. So he, he, he understands that he still has a lot of work to do before he's going to be an established player. And, you know, he's obviously putting on the trade ground, which is great to see. So young players that, that are hungry, but also are going to work really hard on their game and, and look to improve and look to learn from the senior players and look to learn from the manager and ask questions. And I think that from what I've heard, this is what he's about. 
Yeah, and Paulie's got a really good structure and family around him as well, which is crucial. Yeah, they're ingrained in football, and and his father Barry, I think, is working with the FAI and obviously understands the game and knows the game. Um, and he's gone into a really good football environment in Brighton. They seem to do things really well on and off the pitch. And listen, they've got a, a Spurs team who leaks goals in the next round of the FA Cup so uh, <laughs> every every opportunity if he goes up against them but listen he's, he's obviously he's well supported he was well looked after Bose Bose did a really good job of bringing them through um, and managing them in that environment and, and they deserve a lot of credit for that but a lot of work to go, to go and mm-hmm. it's very difficult to make a, a profession or a career in, in this game but fingers crossed that he can he can use the weekend to, to potentially move forward Yeah absolutely we'd only love to see more of him Stephen Kelly thank you as always and we will catch you next week Paul Corey stay with us we're going to take a very quick break and then we're back talking tennis Game on on 2FM with Green Farm being flat to the mass isn't real our protein is get real We've just witnessed an extraordinary 15 to 20 minutes. You can see the crowd still on the street here behind me. They've dispersed and scattered a little bit, though, with police with flashing lights on scene because this is why. This video was taken about 15 to 20 minutes ago. Police pepper spray. Novak's fans here as they were following a car down the road that had exited the lawyer's offices. I was walking along the street. People were on the ground in tears after being pepper sprayed. It turned violent very, very quickly. For context, a black Audi, a sedan, went into the lawyer's office, into the car park, and then about 15 to 20 minutes later, it tried to exit. The Novak fans, they thought it was Novak. They were chanting, free Novak, free Novak. Police tried to get that car out, escort it out. It was slow. It was about one to two kilometres to try to get down the street. It managed to. It got around the corner, as you're hopefully seeing in this vision. Novak fans banging on the car, screaming free Nola, free Nola. Very, very passionate crowd. But then police, they quickly turned very, very quickly. They wanted to disperse this crowd. That's when they deployed that pepper spray. Our understanding is it wasn't Novak inside, it was actually part of his support crew we've seen in Instagram photos previously. As for an update on the case right now, the Immigration Minister, we understand, is not making a decision tonight. So it seems Novak is free to go. But, Pete, it's sounding like, as we speak to sources within the federal government, it's not over. They reserve the right to take this back to court. Right, the Novak Djokovic saga has us all glued to our television screens. It has been going on and on for the last few days. Stephen Higgins, tennis journalist, is with us now. Stephen, bring us up to speed where we're at now with Djokovic. Yeah, I don't know if it's a story that keeps giving and giving or taking away, really. Uh, (laughs) I was checking even the Instagram picture that he sent that started this whole Ferrari and it's only six days ago and it feels like 10 years ago or something but basically uh, I was up all night with a lot of other weird tennis people with coffee and people around the world trying to follow the hearing in the court in Melbourne over through the night and they actually had a fee that they were trying to use for the court but clearly it's somewhere where only maybe four or five people watch it and probably 50 million people wanted to tune in so all you got the, the hearing was actually delayed for a good while because no one could see the feed. Eventually they had to submit after they had an adjournment to uh, put it on YouTube so actually people could see what's going on. The reports were coming out fairly early in though from the court reporters that were there that the Djokovic's lawyers gave their side of his story. Basically for this hearing, 
it was a they were criticizing the treatment by border force that was their issue and the government were defending the treatment of border force and that's that's what it was over so Djokovic's lawyers gave their side about it about how muddled they thought there was the explanation was to him and how he had uh, complied with what they'd asked and then actually you had this point where the lawyer or sorry the judge uh, judge Kelly said what more could this man have done about Djokovic, which kind of gave a signal then that, oh, he was actually quite sympathetic. Then the government gave their side of events. But as it turned then, Djokovic, of course, in detainment at the time in that uh, hotel, the judge then allowed him to come out of containment to watch the hearing. And then shortly afterwards, after I think it was about seven hours or so, basically the judge said he's free to go. Uh, he, he agreed with Djokovic or allowed him to go along. He can go and train and get ready for the Australian Open. However, the government side stated that they reserved the right, as I said in the report, that Alex Hawke, who was the Minister for Immigration, still has the power. Now, he didn't take it last night, but apparently for the rest of the week, he could still decide that they cancelled Djokovic's visa again. And then, clearly you think because the Australian Open starts on Monday, there's no time really for an appeal or legitimate preparation for him to get ready. So that would effectively end his chances in the tournament. There's a really important caveat there, though, and this was said in the courtroom, if they cancel his visa again, he can be banned from Australia for up to three years, which is absolutely extraordinary when you think he's been going to the country 18 years. He's the nine-time Australian Open champion. It's his best place, kind of. And you would have thought as well, he was very well regarded, certainly before this event. Although we're kind of making it like a pantomime, there are a lot of serious issues as part of this case as well. And there's probably a lot of questions that are unanswered too, Stephen. And one of them is whether or not his COVID-19 positive was genuine. And if it was genuine, should there be repercussions because he was going around to meet children at a tennis tournament after he had received this positive test and he was going with no mask and mingling and seemed to be flouting any uh, coronavirus restrictions, which is quite worrying. And, and um, just from... Um, just because he's supposed to be a person as well that is a bit of a role model too yeah he, he boxed himself in a bit now in the lawyers confirmed that he had tested positive for COVID on the 16th of December and he's not vaccinated so there were always rumours about you know people had presumed he wasn't vaccinated because of his issues before and how things were going so that was confirmed that he wasn't vaccinated and then they said the reason for his exemption was the 16th now as people may know because this has been obviously the story of du jour for six days that the actual deadline was the 10th of December for you to claim or not to claim but to show that you had tested positive and that's why your exemption for not having to be vaccinated going to Australia. So there is this interesting point where he is a very, very, very public figure and he is the world number one. He's the most you know, important person in the men's sport at the moment in the men's side. Of course he's going to be at events and he's going to be photographed. He's photographed everywhere he goes. So if he says, and the lawyers say anyway, he tested positive on the 16th, the question then is, when did he know he tested positive? They, you know, people will debate about, oh, it might take 24, 48 hours to get a test back. But of course, you're, we're in Ireland where we have 90 something percent and we're very familiar with PCR and antigen tests if people can get hold of them. So you would automatically be thinking, well, when did he know he tested positive? And if he was waiting for his test, we're all told that we're supposed to stay indoors and isolate. But he was photographed at a couple of events, maybe actually three events where he's talking with children. He was uh, at a, an event, I think, announcing a stamp dedicated to him a day or two, a day and a second day after his test. So clearly 
this popped up in in the reaction to Novak's say release for the moment. There was a celebratory press conference from his family, and this question, which is the most pertinent question that everyone kind of has at the moment, popped up. Okay, so uh, this process was uh, public, and all the documents that are public are legal. So. Okay, so uh, this press conference is adjourned at the moment. Thank you. Well, that says a lot, really, doesn't it? <laughs> well, the thing is, I was on here last week, and as I saw, there were three options for Novak going into the tournament, which I think were still hold today. He could have got vaccinated, like obviously the vast majority of our population, but 95% of his peers in the HP 100, and no one would have ever talked about this ever again, and he would have just gone all our lives. He could have skipped the tournament, like say Tennis Sangren, the American player who was unvaccinated and said that he wouldn't have met any of the exemptions so he just left it and he'll go on to probably play in America the rest of the year. But he chose the third option which has caused this shambles basically of, you know, you're kind of wondering how he's the world number one, he's a nine-time champion, obviously Tennis Australia want him to play in the tournament but is that going to suit? Then you've got a very strict conservative government who as you've heard from all the stories of Australian residents, how difficult it is. They haven't seen their family members. It's very hard for people to come back to Australia at various times. They've been in, what was it, up to 270 days of restrictions and six lockdowns. And he's walking into this. And it is just, I think we said it before, it's, well, he may probably be the greatest male tennis player of all time as a PR specialist. He's a journeyman at best. Like, you know, how did he not see that whether it was legitimate or not and whether he had the exemption or not, you're going into a city and a country, you know, just has gone through so much strife over COVID with an incredibly strict government. And how would it not look like you are just going in as a multimillionaire, very successful person, and you can use the exemption and go in and play tennis, which, you know, as much as I love it, isn't the most <laughs> important thing in the world. Yeah, you would think, though, he just doesn't care. Like, he doesn't care about public opinion. He doesn't care whether or not people are looking up to him or not. Being the most important men's player in the game is seems to be more important to him than what anybody thinks about him. That's true. And I have been on the roller coaster of this journey, probably like everyone else, where when it first came about, I was, oh, Novak, what are you doing? Here we go again with another big... Novak says something that we're all a bit like disappointed with or does something we're disappointed with. But then as it wore, went along, I did actually see how, in spite of everything and his conduct and the decisions he made to go there, I couldn't believe he ended up in a detention centre. I couldn't believe the way, you know, he should, you know, he. I think he is thought of as somewhat of a hero there, at least beforehand, of their, like, you know, their champion, their nine-time champion. He's, you know an extraordinary sports person regardless of his personal decisions or choices and when you saw it, like it's amazing when you saw then like Nick Kyrgios who everyone thought had a massive feud with Djokovic for ages actually saying like I, you know, I don't know what's going on here this has gone way too far and Andy Murray like the conscience of tennis they're <laughs> saying like this has gone too much of course Andy Murray knows him since they're about 11 or 12 that it had become such a circus and so ridiculous that you were thinking then if he is going for his appeal, shouldn't he be allowed to train on a court or something? Shouldn't he be at least be prepared if that happens? And so by the end, then you have this incredible polarization then between probably people who have been through awful restrictions and aren't able to do a lot of the stuff that they wanted to do, who would be against him, particularly in, in Australia. And then, you know, the, a lot of the Serbian fans and Serbian 
residents of Melbourne and all who'd be thinking, yes, like, you know, he was oppressed and uh, some other incredible adjectives that were used in the press conference. And, you know, he was able to fight it, like his greatest comeback. <laughs> How likely is it, though, that the villain is going to triumph? What's so extraordinary is we talk about the thing and I was looking up, to, it's quite a, he's a character, I think, the uh, minister who's going to make the, the decision. He could, I think they have time now where they can see what the sentiment is like and then make a decision. But if it is that the Conservative government want to show that these are our borders and we are, we control them fully, maybe they'll make, maybe he'll make an example of Djokovic. Like, I mean, that's the thing. That's the, unfortunately, it's hanging over everything. And unfortunately, it's hanging over the tournament. And that's the problem. There's a tournament? Really? (laughs) What we're talking about is Djokovic and uh, COVID. Okay, well, we will be previewing that tournament probably later on in the week. And hopefully we will know for sure whether Djokovic will or will not be playing. And then we can actually discuss his form. Now, though, we're going to take a very quick break. Stephen Higgins, as always, thank you so much. Game on on 2FM With Green Farms Being up to 90 isn't real The protein in our range is Get real Game on on 2FM Welcome back. It is now time to talk rugby and Stephen Ferris is with us on the line. Stephen, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Good to talk to you. Um, I suppose, look, a better weekend if you were from Munster, but still, even though they did record that win over Ulster, the narrative is very much focused on Johan van Graan, his pre-match interview, and whether he is the right man to stay at the helm of Munster for the rest of the season. Your thoughts, Stephen? Yeah, um, do you know what? I think there's a lot of opinions floating around out there at the minute. Um, the, the brand, nature, style of rugby that Munster are playing isn't particularly good on the eye. They're still grinding out wins. They're still sitting pretty in both competitions. Um, and Van Graan, if you look at results, is doing a good job. But, you know, Munster fans, they want more than that. They want to be winning with style. They want to be scoring tries. Um, I think you want to see more bums on seats when, when that's allowed um, across the border down south. But it just doesn't feel like he has the backing of these fans. And you go through social media, uh, I think there's a lot of people want Van Graan out and the reason for that is because he's walking away from uh, from his contract and going to Bath. And going to Bath, it, for me, it seems like at the minute that would be a step backwards in his coaching career because they are rock bottom of the Gallagher Premiership. I know they sneaked uh, a win at the weekend there against Worcester Warriors, but... You know, it's uh, it's there's not a good feeling, and Graham Roundtree signing on, everybody is getting behind him, and and uh, you know the Munster fans are just up in arms, and you just touched on it there, Marie, about the, the pre-match interview with with Murray Kinsella, and the way he was so cold and off, mm-hmm. and um, you know Murray's just doing his job, and I was actually sent a tweet from a, a Munster fan saying, you know, it's not the media he's answering to, it's the Munster fans but he's answering to the Munster fans through the media. And I think that's a very important point. Yeah, very much so, because Murray's questions, Murray Kinsella, the Orshi sport reporter, they were very measured and they were the questions that rugby fans, Munster fans, really wanted the answers to. But unfortunately, they didn't get them from Johan van Graan in that moment. But all the while, Munster are getting on with their business as well, Stephen. So they are, they're signing they're signing up their players. Simon Zebo and Ben Healy are among six players who have signed new deals with the club. So that's quite positive. Yeah, it is. It's It's positive. Um, you know, good lads that are hanging around. There's also a few people that might be leaving. Demon Dale Ende, there's chat mm-hmm. that he might be going back to Japan. I don't think anything is concrete there yet. 
wouldn't surprise me if he ended up in Bath, to be honest with you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's there's a if you keep winning, it's uh, it, it keeps people off your back. And you know, Munster have got a couple of tough games coming up. You know, they're away to Cast this weekend. We know Cast like to make it a, a pretty attritional game. You know, dogged. You know, there'll be plenty of mistakes and errors, and you know, Munster are going to have to certainly pull up their socks for this one this weekend. But they're in a good position, both competitions as a reference. And, uh, you know, I think everybody's just got to get behind the lads and um, hopefully we can get the job done over the next few weeks. Yeah, it does feel like another time when it's an important couple of weeks for Munster. And then just in terms of Ulster and their performance, Stephen, yeah. just why the fact that they did they did take that lead. It was against a 14-men Munster, but they weren't able to get over the line. No, and, you know, there's growing concerns now as well uh, with Ulster with their inconsistencies this season. You know, four pretty comprehensive wins at the start of the United Rugby Championship playing the likes of Benetton, Zebra away you know the Lions and then of course that really bad loss to Connacht where they just didn't turn up in the Aviva Stadium then they went on and beat Leinster played a brilliant uh, style of rugby really attacked them hard in defence and then they, they lose to the Ospreys the following week and it's just up and down, up and down, a good Europe and then of course you know a really disappointing display against Munster 14 men on the pitch for Munster after 14 minutes. Um, you know, Simon Zebo, it was just, just one of those unlucky timing incidents. There was no malice in it whatsoever. Um, you know, Mikey Larry gets straight back up, and unfortunately, just the way we're refereeing it now and the decisions had to go against them. So I, I honestly thought that Ulster were going to kick on, Marie, and they didn't. They actually went backwards, and, and Munster were the ones that looked the more dangerous. And if the match had continued on, I think Munster would have scored more points and Ulster would have continued to struggle. Okay, well, thank you for that analysis, Stephen Ferris. That is almost all we have time for. Just a quick nod to Birmingham City, who beat Arsenal in the Women's Super League over the weekend. Birmingham, who are second from the bottom and Arsenal top, and um, Ireland international Louise Quinn playing there. And also Leanne Kiernan scored a stunning hat-trick for Liverpool in just six minutes in their 6-0 win away to Blackburn Rovers. Paul Corey, thank you so Before much. Before we go, Marie, you, you kept it under the right. <laughs> I did. I thought I was going to get away with it. <laughs> we had a tip off from Timmy, Billy, and Davy that it's your birthday today. So, a massive happy birthday from myself and, and obviously from your boys at home. Thank you very much, and thanks, guys, for texting in. Tara Kumar is up next. Game on on Two FM with Green Farm. Your rise and grind isn't real. Our protein is get real. 